Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. And so today's topic is um, understanding if your financial advisor is, is truly working for you. And if you think that they're not, what steps can you take to either correct that scenario or if there have been losses that have resulted from a financial advisor not doing what they're supposed to be doing for you? Um, how, how you might go about, uh, recovering them or securing some kind of, of restitution. And, um, I want to be clear about a couple of things about this topic. Um, it's, it's easy to kind of look at the title of this podcast and say that, well, this is just going to be a hatchet job on, on financial advisors. And, and that's not really the goal. I, I know many financial advisors and wealth planners and I actually hold the CFA charter, which is a, uh, an accreditation that uh, some wealth managers decide to uh, pursue. Um, and I'll tell you, I have nothing but respect for the financial advisory profession as a whole. And I, I've told people this um, offline, I tell them all the time, I think it's actually one of the hardest, if not the hardest profession in finance, because uh, it is highly regulated. Um, it is a a business in which the sales cycle typically is measured in years, not days and months. And it requires a, 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 a different kind of skill set than most financial people have. Like, you know, I, I couldn't do it. I, I'm a, I'm a quant jock that sits behind a spreadsheet all day. Um, and, and developing the kinds of relationships and, and, and th- that result in somebody entrusting you with their wealth, often their life savings or maybe the savings of several generations of their family in some cases, is is an extremely hard thing to do. And so, you know, the, 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 I, I think the days of, you know, the typical kind of stockbroker dialing for dollars, boiler room kind of thing, Wall Street kind of thing, you know, the movies kind of put those out there, but they're not you know, they don't really match reality, I don't think, anymore, though maybe our guests will have something to say about that. Um, but at the same time, I think that this topic is important because a piece of advice I often give uh, clients and anybody else who cares to listen is that you know, if something's really important and if you hire an expert to help you with it, it's not a bad idea to get a second expert to look over the shoulder of the first expert because you don't really know if that expert is doing a great job for you because they're the expert. You're not, you're entrusting them with your relationship with whatever task or mandate that you're giving to them. Right. And I'll put myself out there as an example. I'm a business appraiser 
and you could argue their you could argue their business appraisers don't even understand what we do. Um, but what we do is a very complex thing, uh, a complex task. We sometimes do a good job of communicating what we've done and how we've done it. Sometimes we don't. Um, but you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is I, I can tell you from my experience in over half the cases, right? A client decides I've done a good job or not a good job. If my number comes out to what they thought the number was coming in. <laughs> and so if, if they thought their business was worth a million dollars and, and, and I say, yep, your business is worth a million dollars. I'm a genius. On the other hand, if they thought it was a million dollars and I come in and I say it's $3 million, then you know I'm an idiot. I can't believe that I hired you, et cetera, et cetera. Right? But the, the fact of the matter is, is that the client, most, most clients are not in a position really to assess my work. And so in my field, uh, of, uh, in my field of, of uh, profession, there actually is now another industry of people that do reviews of what I do. And I hold that accreditation called Accredited and Business Appraisal Review, whose job it is and whose role it is to come in behind the appraiser and tell the client, yeah, they did what they're doing. They're doing a good job because you don't necessarily, as a client, you don't necessarily have the skill set to make that assessment on your own. It's really no different than if you're being told that you need to have a kidney taken out and you decide you're going to get a second or maybe third opinion, right? Because you can't really tell. You don't have the medical training. And uh, this applies to the financial advisory space as well. If you entrust your wealth, whether it's in part or in whole, you know, how do you know whether that person's doing a good job or not? And usually you only find out if they're doing a, a bad job if something happens. You look at your brokerage statement one day and there's a lot less value there than there should be for whatever reason. Or there may be other triggers that we'll talk about, right? But the reality is that that event may be years or even decades in the making, depending on how comfortable you are with following your brokerage statements, how engaged you are with managing your wealth. And not all clients are that engaged with management. In fact, that's the value proposition, right? Turn over to me. You can go out and play golf. You don't have to pay attention to this necessarily. We'll touch base every few months and off you go. And, and that's, that's fine um, as far as it goes. But what it also does, it puts the client in a tremendously vulnerable position. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. Uh, I know many wealth advisors um, and, and the ones that I know, I, I, have not, I would not hesitate to refer clients out to them. I think they play a very important role in, in, in society and in the economy because managing wealth is an important and complex thing to do. But because it's, it's important and complex, you know, I think you as a listener need to understand how do you evaluate the job that the financial advisor is doing, and in particular to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of in a vulnerable, uh, in a vulnerable situation? And if it turns out that you are being taken advantage of, what is your recourse? And just as importantly, uh, and we'll talk about this in the interview, you know, just because you lose money, that doesn't mean that your financial advisor screwed you. Um, sometimes investments just don't work out. Um, that, you know, there's, there's just no guarantee of that. Right. And so it's equally important to understand that just because you lost money, that doesn't mean the next thing you do is you get on the phone with an attorney and start throwing lawsuits around and complaints with the sec around, um, uh, you know, the market 
you know, the market taketh and the market uh, giveth away, uh, giveth and taketh away. So with that as kind of the background and setting the stage, I'd like to introduce uh, our guest today, my friend Robert Port, who is a partner with the Atlanta law firm of Gazowitz Franco LLC. The firm focuses on all aspects of fiduciary disputes representing individuals, executors, trustees, investors, shareholders, and financial institutions in complex fiduciary disputes involving wills, estates, trusts, guardianships, businesses, and securities litigation and arbitration. Robert has significant experience representing investors harmed by the misconduct of their stockbroker, investment advisor, insurance agent, or other trusted advisor. Robert is AV rated by Martindale Hubble. Maybe he'll tell us what AV means and has been repeatedly selected as a Georgia super lawyer. I think think, think he left the cape in the car in the practice areas of securities litigation and fiduciary litigation. Robert is a frequent speaker on fiduciary litigation and securities litigation and arbitration before a variety of audiences, including the George Institute of Continuing Legal Education, the Atlanta Bar Association, Stratford CLE Seminars, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, uh, the Georgia Society of CPAs, and the National Business Institute. He has appeared on many uh, media outlets, ones that are far more prominent and important than this one. Uh, so I'm very grateful today that Robert has uh, uh, agreed to come on our little program. Robert, welcome. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Mike. Um, excellent, excellent uh, introduction. You touched on a lot of things that I think are very important in evaluating what I do and how I approach potential cases in this area. So let's let let's dis- let's jump right into that. So your role. How do you describe your role? in that in that discussion. All right, well let me let me step back a little bit and and talk about what I think about when a potential client calls. Uh, so a call will come in and someone will tell me, you know, I think I have an issue with my advisor. My account was X, now it's X minus Y, or they sold me something I didn't understand, whatever the case may be. And one of the things that I need to do is approach it as though I were an advisor. I'm not licensed in the area, but I need to know enough to determine whether the investments that the advisor recommended, if it was a recommended recommendation situation, or if the advisor had discretion, meaning the advisor had the right to buy and sell things without seeking approval beforehand – whether the the investments that the advisor put together are appropriate, suitable is often a word used, for the particular individual. So that is sort of the benchmark. And there's no black and white area here, but generically, you have to look at somebody's age, experience, income, net worth, their needs, their own personal risk tolerance to, uh, to try and get a sense of what was suitable and appropriate for them. So to paint a sort of broad-brushed picture, um, my two boys who are in their 30s have a different risk profile than I do uh, in my 60s. They can theoretically, they may not want to, but theoretically they can tolerate more risk. They can put money into the the company that turns peanut butter into jet fuel. (laughs) Absolutely. And I hope they do. And I hope they make zillions of dollars and this can support dad in his retirement. But but the point is, so that's the first thing I need to do. And going back to one of the points you made in the introduction is, 
you are correct that a lot of people hear what I do and uh, in this area of securities litigation and arbitration, and the impression is, all right, you know, we're going to sue somebody. My, my Apple stock went down $2 yesterday, run down to the courthouse. Uh, clearly not the case for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, uh, one of which is I need to maintain my own credibility in this area. Um, so going back to my prior point, the, the first thing I need to think about is, is what is the appropriate investment profile for the person who's calling? And without getting too much into the weeds, looking at uh, various uh, other investments, you can get a sense over the time period that they're concerned about what an inve- how an investment would have performed. And what I try and look at is, generically, if, if you can do a profile of, of what somebody would have been invested in, how would that have turned out? It may have gone up. It may have gone down. And then you compare that to where they actually ended up. And the mere fact that you've lost money, even substantial money, does not necessarily mean you have a legal case. And, and the perfect example of that was the, uh, what people call the Great Recession in 07, 08, where generically a, a basket of securities comprising a fair mix of the uh, S&P 500 and some bonds, as best I recall, would have been down 35 40%. Now, that's a lot to go down. That's a third of your value. But for a vast majority of investors, it was entirely appropriate that they have investments like that. And as a result, it was entirely, I won't say appropriate, but, but, but um, uh, reasonable that their portfolio would have lost that much. On the other hand, I had cases during that era, era with, um, I recall one case with a widow who was in her 70s, whose portfolio lost 80% during that period. Um, you know, that alone does not indicate that there's a case, but it's certainly a red flag to dig further and see whether what, what happened was inappropriate for her. So it's one thing, it's one thing, you know, in the Great Recession, pretty much everybody lost money, right? The question was how much. Right. But the red flag is, well, why is this one person who probably should have had a lower risk profile, why do they lose twice as much money as, the, as most everybody else, right? That's the red flag. Right. And, and in that particular case, as I recall, and that's been about 10 years ago now, uh, her advisor had put her in um, – what what we'd call you know penny stocks and more uh, risky investments. Now, if she had been in you know people talk about blue chip stocks, you know the names we all know. I'm not going to say any here because I'm not going to do anything that sounds like a recommendation. <laughs> but the names we all know that have been around for a while and pay dividends, those went down as well. And in fact, some well well known names stopped paying dividends. But that would have been appropriate for her. And if she had called and said, my portfolio is down 25%, I would have said, as politely as possible, you're lucky. You, right. know, you, went, you went down less than everybody else. Right. But so, so the point is, as an attorney, the first thing I need to do is determine whether or not there are legally recognizable damages. And uh, to articulate it that in words rather than numbers, 
the from my perspective as someone who represents investors, that legally uh, cognizable damage number is the difference between where they should have been with a portfolio that was suitable or an appropriate versus where they are. It's the difference. And and let me also add to that many lay people, and this goes to your comments about getting expertise and having knowledge. Um, I enjoy this stuff. I know everybody else. A lot of folks don't. It's, it's just gobbledygook. They don't open up their statements because they don't understand them. That's not exactly what I like to see, but it's, it's a fact. It happens. Yep. yep. People are people. <laughs> people are people. And, and so, so one of the things is many folks will, will look at their statements or talking to their friends and they will see uh, that their portfolio is up X, but hear that their neighbor whose advisor on their own was lucky enough to buy pick a name Google when it was two cents and it's now whatever it is. They made not a, a recommendation, not a recommendation. Uh, but the, the point there is in hindsight, it is entirely inappropriate uh, to say, well, I would have picked only things or my advisor should have picked things that only went up. Uh, no one knows what the future holds. Your advisor's obligation at the time they make the recommendation or exercise their discretion to purchase something for you is, again, to do something that reasonably matches your own personal risk profile, your needs, what you've told the advisor, uh, what you want. And, and the last point on that I'd, I'd make is sort of this analogy. When, when we go shopping for clothes – um, you go to the store and there are different sizes, there are different styles. And that is because the old saying, one size does not fit all. And that's true in investments. One size does not fit all. What your neighbor has may or may not be right for you. And one of the red flags I'd caution people to think about or, or keep an eye on is an advisor who seemingly has the same solution for everyone. All right. You see them, they sell you or try and sell you uh, the same variable annuity that your your neighbor has or their other clients have or this portfolio or this fund or whatever it is. Investments need to be tailored to the individual. So um, and, and that segues actually nicely to the next question because there's, there's an important piece of vocabulary in this world um, – that I, I want to make sure the listener understands, and that is the term fiduciary, right? What does the term fiduciary mean, and where does that enter into this discussion that you're describing? Well, the word fiduciary in legal terms means that the person who acts as a fiduciary is supposed to take your interests, your best interests into account in making decisions to avoid conflicts of interest and to do solely what is in your best interest. Think of someone who is a trustee of a trust. They're not supposed to self-deal. They're only supposed to do what's right and appropriate as directed by the trust documents. And the same thing, in my view with respect to financial advisors, the advice they should give, have to give in my view, is 
only what is in your best interest. They should not be motivated by the fact that they might earn a lot of commissions by selling you uh, a mutual fund or a annuity, or if you're dealing with an insurance person, a, a uh, insurance policy. Now, if I can get into the weeds a little bit, one of the things that lay people generally don't understand is that there is a distinction in the law and certainly the investment community understands this between what is generally are generally known as stockbrokers versus what are called financial advisors. Mm-hmm. And in the law, financial advisor is actually an important term. A financial advisor who is registered under what's called the 1940 Investment Advisors Act has an obligation to act as a fiduciary as a matter of statutory law and Supreme Court case law. In contrast, a stockbroker, depending upon their licensing, is obligated to only adhere to what's called a suitability standard, which is a lesser standard than a fiduciary. And uh, in fact, and this is a debate I often have in cases with the attorneys who are on the other side of the case, I believe that even a stockbroker has a fiduciary obligation. I believe there's case law that supports that. But Uh, To be candid, uh, there are arguments that can be made that a stockbroker only has an obligation of suitability, which is generally described as an obligation to only recommend recommend investments that are suitable based on the customer's age, uh, income, risk tolerance, and things like that. And the distinction, you know, sort of lawyerly, may sound to some people like we're arguing over, uh, what's the phrase, the, the head of a pin or something like that. Yeah, dancing on the head of dancing a pin. Dancing on the head of a pin. The distinction is that the suitability obligation is a lesser obligation than the fiduciary obligation. So someone can recommend something that is arguably suitable, but is not in the client's best interest. A stockbroker could, for example, recommend an investment that uh, has higher fees to the client, uh, earns them higher commissions where there would be an argument that if they were acting as a fiduciary, that wouldn't be the case, um, that they can't do that. So, uh, to the extent I have a recommendation as a lawyer, uh, I would only use a financial advisor who, um, forthrightly acknowledges that they have a fiduciary fiduciary obligation. And that technically means they need to work for an entity that is a registered investment advisor, RIA. And that means that they as individuals are an investment advisor representative, an IAR. Um, Those people, there are no guarantees, even fiduciaries mess up. But to the extent that people willingly and knowingly take on that obligation, that is uh, whatever the opposite of a red flag is, that's a uh, green light, green light that, that there is a probability that they may well, in fact, understand what they're doing, have the expertise that Mike spoke about in his introduction. And again, a probability, only a probability, I can't, uh, nobody can give you any guarantees that they will do what is right for you and in your best interests. Now, in this discussion, there's also a distinction between a prudent person, used to be called a prudent man, I think it's now a prudent person is now the term of art, 
and a prudent expert. Um, are you familiar with that or am I? I'm, I'm not, but okay. let's, let's explore it. Okay. Sounds interesting. So I'm curious if you've run into this. So it, it does come up in, in the CFA curriculum. Um, and, and a, a, a prudent person is, is in, when they're in a position of making decisions on behalf of somebody, say they're an executor of a trust, right? But they're not necessarily a trustee, but they have been entrusted with a certain role, right? But you're not, you're not necessarily an expert. Like if say, you know, somebody who, uh, somebody who works in retail, right? Suddenly is, is put in the position, maybe they didn't realize that they're put in the position of managing their family's assets, their parents passed away, the will named that person as the executor. And now this person is, you know, may have experience handling assets, perhaps doesn't, right? The legal standard, as I understand, or maybe not legal standard, but the professional standard to which that person is held is a prudent person, meaning that you're supposed to be a reasonably intelligent person. You're supposed to apply common sense in how you manage those assets. But because you weren't holding yourself out as an expert, right, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily competent. It just, but it does mean that you're logical and you're trying to basically do the right thing as opposed to a prudent expert. And I've seen this in cases where I've, uh, I've worked with uh, you know, one case I had a few years ago um, where a family asset went into conservatorship um, and the conservator, as it turned out, was the business owner's daughter who was a CPA. And she was very unhappy about this. And she, she wanted to get rid of this like as a grenade with a pin pulled out, I can tell you that. Um, but she was put in the position of being a prudent expert because she held a CPA license and therefore was assumed to have a greater body of knowledge around finance that, that another person may not necessarily have. And so I guess that's a long preamble to making an observation on which I would like you to comment that sometimes financial advisors are in fact accidental, right? You don't realize you're going to be put in that position. All of a sudden you are, right? And in, in that case, does the law provide for additional leeway when you, know, you say, look, I, I didn't sign up for this. I kind of did the best I could, but you know, <laughs> right. yeah, no, I've, I've, I've got it. And, and that's fascinating. I've, I've never actually uh, heard of the prudent expert concept. And I'd, I'd have to think about that a little bit, but it may but, not be a legal term it may just yeah. be in my professional standards. Right. But, but what, what your, what your comment made me think of is this, uh, Georgia and a lot of states have a trust code. And under the trust code, someone who uh, takes on the position of being a trustee, either voluntarily or because they're thrust into it, because maybe even unbeknownst to them, a relative or somebody wrote in their will or in their in the, the trust that uh, when I die or when I become incompetent uh, under my trust, you're, you're my trustee. And the law imposes an obligation of prudence. I forget exactly what the precise terminology is, but it's essentially what you've described. So again, w without uh, giving detailed thought to it, um, I don't believe you get much of a pass uh, if you take on that role, which under the law means you're a fiduciary, whether you want it to be or not. Mm. Um, I would say you you don't get a pass because you know I don't know a stock from a from a kumquat. I don't know anything about investing. 
Uh, if you take on that role or are thrust into it, it seems to me entirely reasonable to insist that you either resign and, and get someone to do it or seek the assistance of, of someone who knows what they're doing. So I, I don't think, and you know, a, a, a lot of a lot of answers to questions that people ask me about the law are it depends, yep. uh, which is a reference to you know what are the background facts? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in the law that aren't black and white; there's shades of gray, and um, so so this is one where again, if I were writing on a clean slate, and I'm thinking of some of the cases my firm does in the area of trust and estates litigation, where clearly I have one going on now, someone without the expertise to be a trustee has been handling a trust and has caused hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage in our view. Um, And I am pursuing the case um, under the assumption and argument that it, really doesn't matter that he didn't have the expertise. And, and if I can, that's a segue for me to, to mention this. Um, I am by nature very adverse to all of the um, adding what, what Warren Buffett sometimes calls all the helpers, you know, the CPAs, the attorneys, the financial advisors, everybody's getting a little piece of the action. Um, by my nature, I'm, I'm not thrilled with that. On the other hand, I have learned in this practice, dealing with fiduciary disputes in the wills, trusts, and estates area and in the securities area, that it is well worth the cost, presuming the costs are reasonable and appropriate, to get the expertise that Mike has described, to get a professional fiduciary. There are entire companies of substantial worth whose business is to manage assets. And the way I view those fees is the the fees you will pay for doing that, which are generally uh, a percentage of assets under management. I view that as an insurance policy to avoid having assets managed by someone who does not know what they are doing and the risk of that. That is like an insurance premium. Um, and, and most of the cases we see in the trust and estates area, uh, almost all of them are lay people who've been thrust in these roles. You know, the, the oldest son, who's the attorney, the daughter, who's a CPA, the son, who's the doctor and mom and dad think, yeah, sure. They'll, they're smart. They can handle this. And either, intentionally or unintentionally, they, they don't have a clue of what they're doing. And that can range from mere negligence to uh, essentially outright uh, embezzlement. And, and, you know, there's a funny thing about embezzlement and, and white collar not, not crime. To, not to the person that's being embezzled. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. But not, not, not funny humorous, but funny strange is, especially if you're a lay person and you, you're not used to this, I think a lot of not a lot. I think many of those crimes are committed quasi accidentally, and that they don't understand kind of where the line necessarily is. Now, the what you bring up that scenario is interesting because it actually applies to me. So, you know, my parents wanted me initially to be the trustee of their estate, um, 
which with my financial background, I'm fully qualified to do. But perfectly candid, I do not get along very well with my sister. And so what I told them was that if you, you do that, the returns on the estate will be great and there will be a lot of very happy lawyers, <laughs> right? Because um, I just know the way that relationship's going to go. So you know, even in that particular case, because one of the things you have to look at is family dynamics too. Just because I'm technically qualified, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm the best person for that job. And somebody independent, I think, and that, thankfully my parents ultimately saw the wisdom of that, providing for an independent trustee uh, is, is, is going to go a long way to, to making sure that the wealth does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You're, you're, a, you're a very wise son, and you, you raise one other issue which we see in our practice. And um, some, sometimes folks will ask, well, what, what's a bit of advice you give to people? Um, and, and this is true, I think, generically with dealing with family money is – to the extent possible, transparency, disclosure, and explaining to your heirs or whomever needs to know why it is you're making the decisions you're making. Um, what, what's been interesting to me is to realize that even people of nominal means over a lifetime uh, can accidentally accumulate a meaningful amount of money. You know, seven figures is not unusual. Uh, if if you're middle class, you don't burn through your money, and it just sits there and accumulates. And and what what is interesting is, for some reason in our society, talking about money is taboo. And mom and dad don't want the kids to know that when I die, you guys are going to split one million, two million, five million, and Surprise, we're both gone, and now you got to wrestle with it. So we advocate, within the extent possible, to have some disclosure, to have some transparency. If there are, for example, uh, a reason you want to give one child more than the other, explain that. If you want to leave the marital home or the, the vacation home to one child or the other or give it all to the ASPCA, what, whatever it is, explain that. It may not eliminate the disputes, but to the extent your heirs can understand your rationale, um, it, it's, it's very helpful. And when you couple that with, as you have wisely done for the circumstances you've described, have a third party in there, uh, it, it has the probability of tamping down disputes. Now, you know, your, your, Family members may get into a dispute with the third party, but you know you've you've done what's appropriate, and hopefully they have executed their duties appropriately. So um, I want, want to come back to the, the primary topic because there's one question I want to make sure that we get kind of out there, which is, um, you know, if if so, if if I'm not happy with my portfolio, and I, and what are what are kind of the the, the signs that as somebody who's an investor, I might see in my portfolio that might lead me to conclude that there is something amiss, some sort of malfeasance, as opposed to it's just my tough luck a loss, right? How how can I triage initially to make sure I'm not just sort of running to you every time 
you know, I lose 2%, wah, right? As opposed to, you know, this, 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 this is really bad. They shouldn't have taken 10% of my portfolio and invested in his brother's alpaca farm, right? It's not, it's typically not that egregious. So in your experience, what are kind of the breadcrumbs that say, you know, you really ought to think about talking to somebody to see if there was something amiss? Sure. I, I think the first thing to think about is reflect back on your initial discussions with your advisor. Did he or she take as much of a deep dive as they could into learning about you? You know, what, what are your needs? Do you have kids that need to go to college? Are you worried about your retirement? Um, are you, do you have aging parents you might have to support? Um, are you going to lie awake at night if you see in the paper that the stock market's gone down, you know, X percent today or tomorrow? Um, reflect back on whether you feel that the advisor uh, got a good picture of who you are. And that goes back to what I said before, which is one size does not fit all. You know, if if you're dealing with an advisor whom is an untrusted is uninterested in any of that or doesn't appear to be and doesn't really find out about you, I think that's a red flag if you can not to get started. But if you're there, reflect back on that. The other thing I would, uh, there's a number of other things that come to mind. Um, I would get an understanding as to whether or not the investments seem to be, I'll say, ordinary and boring or that stocks and bonds and mutual funds, or are they calling you about hedge funds and real estate investments and uh, annuity abuse, uh, particularly variable annuities and what's called equity indexed annuities are a problem. You know, do, do the, do the investments sound overly complicated? And, and one way to think about this is this is your money. You've worked a lifetime or your working career to accumulate it. Uh, if you can't explain to, you know, a child who is 10 years old what your money is doing and where it is, you ought to ask yourself whether that ought to be the case. If you don't understand what's happening with your money, um, that's potentially a red flag. Now, you know, Mike talked about expertise, and I, I often make analogies to, to going to the doctor. You know, you go to the doctor, and he or she says, well, you have this issue, and you need this operation or take this medicine, and hopefully they explain it enough so you understand and what, what the problem is. And think about that with, with your own advisor and with your investments in well, as well, you know. You may not be able to talk about P.E. ratios and, and uh, you know, Delta and, and all the other ways that someone like Mike knows how to measure investment performance, but you should have an understanding generically how much of my portfolio is exposed to stocks, how much is exposed to bonds, uh, what else is going on, do I need investment income, dividends, and things like that. Um, I would also be concerned about uh, something that Mike alluded to, which is, you know, is the advisor suggesting you invest in things that are, if you will, offline? 
You know, does the advisor call? I've had cases where the advisor says, well, you know, I've got this, uh, I'm getting into rental housing and, you know, I need some investors. Or, um, you know, my, my brother-in-law's alpaca farm or, um, you know, my buddy's starting a hedge fund and, uh, you know, need, need some money and, uh, you know, uh, the, I think it's a great investment. And another one is, um, there are no guarantees, um, against loss, I guess, except maybe if you buy, uh, government bonds and right. there's there's a debate about loss there but if you hold them to the end you know unless the world right. blows up you'll get your principal nominally back. you'll get your principal back. right um so be concerned if if an advisor says oh it's guaranteed uh that doesn't necessarily apply to annuities they're backed by insurance companies and you get your uh in, in uh, money back, uh, but on on annuities, and again, I'm talking about particular types of annuities. Immediate annuities are generally not an issue, but when you're sold an annuity, for example, there is a uh, prospectus. Uh, that may not be the exact right word for annuities, but generally a thick document written by a whole room full of lawyers explaining how this doc- how this. Uh, thing works. <laughs> Explaining in quotations. Explain, yeah, in air quotes. That's exactly right. And I have had cases where these are incomprehensible. I had one case where I hired an expert who has something like a PhD from MIT in mathematics. And he said it took him and his three colleagues who also have similar credentials like a week to figure out how this thing worked. <laughs> Um, if you, and it goes back to what I said before, if you can't read and understand what's happening with your money, even though it, in, you know, you may find out later, you could have tripled your money in, in two weeks. Um, don't do it. And that sort of leads me to something else. And I can obviously go on and on here, but one of the principal things I think folks need to understand is what is a reasonable rate of return? One of the things that Ponzi schemes, and you can think about Bernie Madoff, if you will, as an example, is that they promise folks unreasonable rates of return. And and I'm speaking from memory here, but one of the things to think about is what what is a fair rate of return on reasonable investments right now? So if I'm recalling correctly, if you were to buy government bonds right now, you might get what one and a half two percent a year give or take the term yes right um if you buy generically all of the stocks in the s&p 500 you know historically depending upon what numbers you use including dividends or not you know maybe seven eight percent and so on and so forth so if someone comes to you and says and i've seen this 15 percent per month guaranteed it might happen but there's no free lunch. Return is not without risk. Um, and to me, you know, that sort of screams some sort of fraud. Um, so I've talked about benchmarking before in terms of figuring out your damages. One other thing in terms of figuring out whether you are in a place that you ought to be is if your advisor is guaranteeing returns, guaranteeing against loss of income, what, what return is, is he or she guaranteeing? You know, Bernie Madoff's 
brilliance, if I can use that word, is that he structured his Ponzi scheme so he returned 10% essentially per year, year after year, which interestingly enough comes very close to a little bit more risky investment portfolio, which is not outrageous. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sort of slipped under the radar there. But what a lot of lay people didn't realize was that it is almost impossible to have annual returns like that year after year. You know, I said a moment ago the S and P returns maybe, you know, seven eight percent. That's not year after year after year. That's over twenty thirty years. You know, it might go up fifteen percent one year, down twenty percent the next, and and that is a. Um, an average. Um, so, you know, be careful out there, understand what you're getting into, be able to explain it. Don't believe that you're special and you're getting these fabulous returns. Cause candidly, one of the things that I often think about is if in fact there was an investment that had, you know, 15% per month, uh, returns, I don't know why anyone would sell that to anyone else. I'd keep that all to myself Absolutely. and, and I'd benefit from that. And I wouldn't be selling it to people for a, a small commission on getting them into it. You know, uh, what you're talking about, those Ponzi schemes remind me, and you would have gotten a kick out of this. Um, you know, er, I started my career in Russia and I started at a point where they were going through privatization. You may recall they had vouchers where you get – you basically got a certificate from the government that basically said you had equity in the, the state's assets. That was the way they tried to privatize. And so – but the problem is, right, 150 Russians have these vouchers. 150 million Russians have these vouchers. On an individual basis, they really weren't – worth a whole lot, right? And that was not a society that accumulated a lot of wealth. It was designed to prevent that, right, communism. Um, and so they, I, I still remember they, they had um, – there were commercials for this company at the time. It was called MMM Invest. And, and this was before they had our kind of securities laws in terms of disclosures, what you can say and what you can't say. And they would brazenly come on and say, if you invest your voucher with us and we're guaranteeing you – you know, a 30% rate of return every quarter. And they'd have these people come on saying, I invested my voucher with MMM Invest and now I'm driving a Rolls Royce, that kind of thing, right? And it just shows you kind of, you know, their securities laws have since evolved somewhat. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that our level, but but it was it was interesting to see when you when you kind of take the safeties off of the regulations, right? You don't see that on TV here. But without regulations, you'd see that all the time. Well, you, you, uh, that's a fascinating story. I, I've, I've always wondered about the transition from communism to whatever it's become. Um, but but I, I will say this. If, if you hearken back to right before the Great Depression, uh, your listeners may recall the commercials on TV where someone's invested with ABC company and now they're on a yacht and now they're sitting on a beach with their broker in front of their presumably fancy uh, second, third or fourth home. So, so, uh, you know, they, they, they may not come on TV and say 30% per year, but they're saying, well, trust us and we'll, we'll turn, we'll turn your money into this. And, and that actually made me think of, of one other thing that, that, um, 
is important to me. And in, in fact, how I think about investing for me personally and, and for, again, I'm not an advisor, but this, this is the way I think about it. Um, there is nothing wrong with batting for average. All right. Uh, going back to what I said before, you know, a basket of securities broadly invested across stocks and bonds over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, yes, there have been terrible ups and downs. And if you go back even further to the Great Depression, you know, it, it was uh, horrific. But over long periods of time, if you can stomach the ups and downs, and that goes to what's reasonable and appropriate for you, you will get a fair average return. Or I won't say you will because that's, that's predicting, but you have. I don't, nobody knows what the future holds. Um, and what's interesting is there are study after study that, demonstrate that, but also at the same time have looked at actual investors' returns, you know, taking into the account the people who watch TV and buy this, sell this, and they trade and they incur commissions and tax costs. And just sort of, um, I don't recall the exact numbers, but let's say over the last 20 years, the S&P, a diversified portfolio, let's say, has returned, I'll pick a number, 7%. What they find is people who think they can predict the market and buy and sell or do different things, they generally, on average, I think that the differential is, uh, you know, something like 5 or 4%. You know, they're losing conceptually 3% a year because they're trading and because they think they know the future. So, so A, bat for average. Um, B, understand that no matter how brilliant your advisor is or you think they are, they don't know what the future holds. And, and one way to think about this in my mind is uh, lots of folks will point to, well, Warren Buffett has earned these fabulous returns. I forget what they are, but it's approaching what 15, 20% year over year over year since the fifties. Yeah. Although the last two years have not been kind to Berkshire Hathaway, but until then, yes. Okay. But, but the point I'd leave your listeners with is that's fine. Um, Mike, as, as, a, as a numbers guy, will understand what I say, that there is a probability that people like Warren Buffett exist. They're what they would call outliers. They get more than average returns. The question for any investor, I think, is what is the probability of the hundreds of thousands of advisors out there? What's the probability that today you're going to pick the advisor who will 20 or 25 years from now be the next Warren Buffett? And I'd respectfully suggest that probability is approaching zero. It it is. I, I often characterize Warren Buffett and I call him Warren, he calls me, who the hell are you? But I, I characterize him as Mozart. Yep. Right? And there's only one Mozart in several generations. Even Warren Buffett has said, if you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and somebody besides me is staring back at you, you ought to be in index funds. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, Robert, we're running out of time. There's one other question I want to ask before we, we, we let you go. Um, because we talked about some of the, kind of the, the smoking gun where smoking gun elements where maybe there's something that somebody might come to you and ask a question about. 
And, and I want to ask specifically about um, a lot of account activity, right? And you talked about people that do their own churning, they're day traders, and you know, m- maybe you beat the market by 2%, but you've paid 4%, so you're really not out you're not ahead. Well, plus taxes. Plus taxes, right? So, so my question is, if somebody opens, if they have an actively managed account, they open their brokerage statement and, and see there's a lot of activity, is that, is that often a smoking gun? Well, thank thank you for raising that. Uh, yes, it can be, and and what's what's important to to understand in in this day and age is the manner in which funds are invested now by by investors is a little different than it used to be. So Mike used the word churning, and the concept in the law is a lot of buying and selling in your account to generate commissions for the broker that may or may not be good for you. Um, So yes, lots of activity in the account can be an indication that there's a problem, but the caveat is that many brokerage firms in particular, and indeed other advisors, are going to what are called managed accounts now, where your funds are actually placed with another investment management fund. And they do, in fact, trade, you know, as best I can tell, every day. And the way some of those are structured is you will get a statement. I've seen these where you know, it'll be pages and pages and pages because the transactions done in what's called the managed account flow through to you. Um, that might not be a problem if, in fact, the setup is a, manage, a managed account run by an independent advisor where the fee is simply computed on assets under management and they're not taking a, a commission on every trade. But the bottom line is, yes, lots of activity can indicate a problem. It could indicate your broker is churning your account because his kid needs to go to college or he wants a new boat or he wants to compete with the broker down the hall who just got a new uh, Maserati, whatever the case may be. So, you know, look at that. Is it a black and white issue? Sometimes it is. Um, Just a a short story. Years ago, I I represented an elderly widow whose account had what we call a turnover rate of 21 annually. And what that meant was, when you did the math, and Michael could explain how that's done because I had someone other than me do it, but when you do the math, functionally what was happening is her entire account was bought and sold every other week. Right. And she started with, I I think the numbers were $160,000. And over the course of a year, when she came to me, she had $1,500 left and the broker had earned $40,000 in commission. Now, that's probably one of the most egregious cases I will see, but that goes to churning. So bottom line is, yes, lots of activity, particularly if you have not given your advisor what we call discretion or authorization to trade without calling you, uh, that, that can be very much of a problem. Robert, we're, uh, we're out of time, but we, there are lots more questions that, that we could ask and somebody may have. How can somebody uh, reach you if they want to learn more about this? 
Sure. The name of uh, our law firm is Gaslowitz. That's G-A-S-L-O-W-I-T-Z, Frankel, F-R-A-N-K-E-L. You can find us on the web at uh, gaslowitzfrankel.com. My phone number is 404-892-9797. And if you want to shoot me an email, it's rport at GA for Georgia, GADisputes.com. And that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Robert Port so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.